0: this is habitat matters produced by architecture today in partnership with echo a podcast series that looks at the challenges involved in putting biodiversity and green infrastructure at the heart of our built environment hi i'm isabel allen editor of architecture today i'm talking to christina montero from dkcm and landscape architect charlotte harris from harris bug studio And um, we're here to talk about rewilding and in particular the vital importance of giving children opportunities to explore and to enjoy wild space and woodland. So, Christina, what do we actually know about the relationship between children's health and well-being and their access to nature? I think um, the benefits of children accessing uh,
1: nature Um, is not a kind of new theme, it's something that we have um, actually been learning from um, a lot of research um, that really started at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, And um, Richard Louv wrote a a really inspiring book for me called The Last Child in the Woods, um, that sort of tells that story of the forest school movement um, and the importance of nature to children and to humans. uh, and the forest school movement for me is something that's very inspiring that I didn't really know much about until I became a parent, but something that somehow, as a, a child that was brought up in the countryside, I, 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 um, I had access to nature that most children in the in urban environments don't. And so it's recognising that my own personal experiences has shaped the way I can read landscapes. In a way that um, that can be sort of formalized through a curriculum, and and um, and that's really um, what inspired me in relationship in relation to to um, understanding more about how important um, nature is for for children' uh, development and well being, particularly in in places urban places in um, to the bare eye might not not seem very
0: wild and has there been much research looking at whether children who attend forest schools or um grow up in environments where there's a real emphasis on the outdoors go on to be happier healthier or is it just a sort of um gut instinct that they do i
1: think there is a lot of research i'm not an educationalist so i'm an, an architect and um I, I'm sort of re- relatively fresh coming into the subject, um, and um, I, I don't. Um, my, my knowledge is not from a scientific perspective; it's, it's empirical, and as a designer. Um, but but yes, I think that there's also been a kind of flourishing of um, yeah. of research in the last, say, five years. Um, that um, that really sort of um, connect um the the sort of the benefits of um engaging children with nature in early years um and I I I think perhaps Mm. later in this conversation we can go into more details in relation to you know perhaps what there isn't enough yet is like later years in education to sort of carving out space for um um, outdoor learning, um, say, in secondary schools, um, which i, I don 't think that side is being as explored as ed- earlier education has so far um, but i 'm a parent of a six year old so I have also not gone that far.
2: I just wanted to pick up on the previous point about statistics and i don 't know about forest schools, but I certainly read um, a report that was uh, two thousand and nineteen the Wildlife Trust Nature Virtu- um, nurtures children. Where um, there was a statistic which I thought was really interesting. It was uh, undertaken with primary age school children four to eleven years, and seventy-nine percent of them felt that the experience of being in nature helped their schoolwork, and the same amount of children felt more confident. Um, and that seems like an enormous, you know, enormously compelling figure. And I don't think it's kind of a rocket science to any of us. Um, and I think it's really encouraging that recent kind of high-level reviews have been talking more confidently about bringing nature into schools that every child is really owed the teaching of natural history. Um, you know, as the landscape architect, as um, an environmentalist, when we start disconnecting children from nature, not only do we do them a disservice for their own mental and physical well-being, but we also do sort of the environment and climate action a disservice. Because if you're not connected with nature, at a young age you don't understand it and you're not engaged with it Um, and to be disassociated from it means that we potentially become disassociated from protecting it. Um, So those are all kind of um, for me quite interesting ways to think about it as well. I I, I think it's
1: a really really important point I think uh, in relation to sort of language and I think people tend to think that rewilding or wilding is about huming, humans leaving nature, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's about in an urban context. It's about mu- humans reconnecting to nature, uh, mm-hmm. and I think rewilding mm-hmm. in the urban context is a very, very different thing to rewilding in a kind of in a nature a national park context in the kind of in the countryside. So wow. I think it's really important that that we think about wilding our cities are kind of wilding the humans uh, rather than ha- letting um queen spaces become sort of um self hilding because it, it in the urban context is a very different thing
2: yeah you're absolutely right it's that idea of letting nature thrive in the absence of intensive management isn't it yeah i think we also you know i've had a couple of um bad experiences with um commercial developers who see rewilding as an opportunity to get out of any kind of maintenance long-term maintenance contracts as well (laughs) so I think it's really important that we frame that we really frame that definition Um, you know somebody talked about a rewilded landscape as a yeah as I say as a way to cut costs and that is not just not what we're talking about
0: yeah
2: Um, it is about nature thriving even in the smallest
0: of ways I mean, you're absolutely right, you see it everywhere. It's kind of neglect and rewilding are kind of taken as synonymous. Um, but I'm interested, Charlotte, particularly in your role as a landscape architect, in whether you see a tension between the kind of instinctive desire to control something and produce something that you absolutely own and in a sense predict, and um, the tendency of nature to run its course and be unpredictable. Do you find that difficult thing to balance
2: I think that's the great joy of it. I think as a landscape architect, you don't, but I think potentially clients, especially commercial clients m- might do. Um, I think the great joy of being a landscape architect, and this, is, um, this means no offence to architects or other, other related professions, is that we work in a medium where we can't control it. That is the greatest thing about being a gardener. It teaches you to relinquish control and work with, and work with processes in a way that I think teaches us all lessons. Really, it's not about leaving spaces to go wild and, and increasingly with the austerity agenda and um, maintenance budgets being cut the, and the importance of kind of bringing in communities to be part of that landscape and to understand, you know, their role in that and that, they, that those places are places for everyone. I have a local park, West Ham Park, which I think is a really great mix of sort of ornamental and wilder spaces Um, I think there's some quite interesting work by um, people like uh, Bridget Snaith at UEL UEL, around how sometimes spaces that are perceived as wild can not necessarily be that inclusive to women, for example, around safety issues, to people from different ethnic backgrounds, and that there is a sort of, definitely, if we are, you know, landscape landscape architecture is generally a white profession and are we creating spaces within a sort of quite monocultural lens so I think we have to be really careful about that's why I think we come back to definitions and definitions are really important.
0: You're listening to Habitat Matters produced by Architecture Today in partnership with ACCO as part of their Habitat Matters campaign. Find out more at habitat-matters.com.
2: I think there's a sort of thing around legitimate taste and Bridget Snaith talks about this quite a lot, legitimate taste in landscape design Things like the Olympic Park is one of the studies that she had that has legitimate taste in the wildness of it, but actually, when she undertook um, qualitative and quantitative research, there were points in that that felt excluding.
1: I really agree with, with, um, with the points made that it's really, really naive to think that in urban contexts you can have wild spaces that are maintenance free. Um, but I, I also think that, for instance, um, allotments um, are wonderful spaces, they are very inclusive. And they can be completely wild. From, from my experience, um, my child goes to a primary school that has adopted a number, a, a primary school in in, uh, in Tairamets with very restrictive play space. So they have adopted a number of um, green spaces around the school. And one of them is a tiny little allotment that's so wild and so beautiful, and each class has um, their own... Uh, allotment bed and it's such a kind of it's a real glue for the community around the school and and children and parents from so many backgrounds are ultimately um, you know really in love with this tiny little space um, and that it's open it's actually quite open to the public people can see it and and um, and there's like Um, seeds that get that get sort of um given from there there's pots and it's become becomes like a real common for the community not just parents not just children also people more broader people in the neighborhood too and i i feel whilst that space is heavily managed it's also um really really wild and the way that they manage that tiny bit of land and give ownership for different children in different stages it's so magic um, and if you walk past it you probably wouldn't you wouldn't at certain times of the year you wouldn't even think much about it but children become aware of seasons children become aware of um, food culture they know what, what where where tomato comes from it's just and Again, if we're talking about wild uh, rewilding being about uh, allowing humans to reconnect to nature, um, I think an allotment, uh, and it's something that I'm sort of making a case for in terms of like a lot of our carbon emissions, and if we're thinking about decarbonising our, our cities, a lot of our carbon emissions come from food production. And if, if we could start making spaces in our cities for growing food, uh, in small ways such as you know schools growing a bit of their food um um but bigger ways too and um, i i think we would start having much more biodiverse cities too and um, i was the treasurer for the friends of um um the gardens that were next to her house for um quite a few years and the local authority was quite hostile towards us um And um, they saw us almost like um, a potential risk for um, the contractors. (laughs) So when we were scattering seeds and when we were doing weeding and when we were were, um, not welcomed, which is, this is uh, 15 years ago. So that was my first experience to trying to, um, do something good to my neighborhood and, and being faced with a local authority that couldn't afford to maintain it, but was not very happy uh, having kind of local residents uh, trying to take care of this space. So this there's been quite a lot of tension over, um, I think, uh, in urban contexts um, with local community groups and local authorities. And I think we really need to start rethinking about these relationships and local authorities have, are coming some way to trying to meet communities. Um, and a lot of the work that I'm currently doing is really about that, um, empowering communities to, to, to carve spaces so that they can do their own growing, their own rewilding.
0: What are, what is central government, what are local authorities, what are educationists doing to actually make those privileges into kind of fundamental rights for all children? Um, there
2: was a report in March 2021, wasn't there? The Deskupta review was basically, um, it stated every child in the country is owed the teaching of natural history to appreciate how it contributes to our lives. And it feels like the idea of bringing nature into schools has has higher level backing. It feels like the experience of the pandemic has really amplified, you know, our understanding and valuing of those spaces. I think. Perhaps there are other things that we can look at, you know, just thinking about Christina's point about um, allotments and schools. It's also what we do to encourage, you know, if, if, you know, on a planning level, can we encourage people to plant up their front gardens? Does that give us incredible um, nature corridors, wildness corridors uh, and disincentivize creating parking spaces? Does that give... Children and young people the opportunity to garden another space, but also to engage with their local community. We in in lockdown we broke up our front our our front yard and planted it, and the conversations we had were amazing. That that and and we continue to have by being out on the street in a sort of collective sense. Um, so I think there are things that on on lots of levels, you know, on, uh, in terms of how the sort of permissions that we give right through to you know, the education system reprioritizing nature in schools, because nature-based teaching teaches us so many things, isn't it, risk and reward. My earliest memories are falling out of trees and it really teaches you um, <laughs> good lessons, I think. And I think that idea of being moved from nature um, really takes us away from important life lessons. I mean, I don't know, Christina, do you, I don't know on a sort of macro level, on on those kind of decisions that isabel was asking about but certainly i feel that there is a there is a step change in how people and communities prioritize green space and wanting them to wild up on a strategic level uh, we we think that um
1: for instance um the, the mayor of london uh with the, with um, last year um issued a, a sort of report about how how to make um uh london uh more fre- friendly environment for children um and um and gives really wonderful advice on kind of doorstep play and woods to schools and all of these things um so easily can be in- enhanced um in tower hamlets um there's been a kind of potentially controversial but um um and it's interesting how for instance as kind of divided certain school or certain communities um and we're seeing a lot of deep paving, which I think it's wonderful. We're seeing more grass, more more flowers, more more trees um, in our immediate na- neighborhoods. And we've we've the impact with that has been that um, so certain certain businesses have been able to spill out to the street in a way that they couldn't before when when the streets had a more car dominance. And we we're, we're hoping that. Um, that these sort of pilot projects are, are are going to be you know resilient and that um and that that they can sort of be rolled out on a London scale but also inspired by um, other cities in the world to to do similar programs I think we look up quite a lot as um, urban designers to to the Netherlands for those sorts of programs and we're, we're working on a project for with arrow council um, and I was thinking quite a lot of a uh, public consultation together with another uh, architect company called Carver Harvard um, this summer. And what was wonderful was the kind of the, the call from the wider public that we consulted for a couple of weeks this summer for deep paving for curb gardens, for more trees on quite urban environments that, you know, literally two years ago w- the focus would have been CCTV cameras, parking spaces, and um, and free parking. I mean, so whenever you do consultation in a sort of open uh, um, street, that's that tend, tended to be the, the 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 main drivers of complaints. And um, and and this time it was a very different um, uh, uh, sort of call, and and that that's really inspiring. And I think. Um, I, I I feel very energized by that. And as part of of that kind of finding, we, we started doing, we're really in the infancy of a campaign called Wild City. Um, and our campaign is about telling stories of, there seems to be so many little groups, so many many organizations across London um, that are doing so well at sort of claiming green spaces and um Either through allotments um, or through little woodland provisions, so so we, we are doing amateur documentary films um, telling these stories and, and the idea is to inspire other groups um, and other people to to um, to sort of reach out to their their neighbourhood and see how can they potentially um, contribute to to making the, the their setting. More biodiverse and um, and more productive too.
0: So I think that's fantastically um, heartening, and I would agree that there seems to be this huge groundswell of sort of excitement from community groups and um, actually young urban designers and architects coming through. Um, Charlotte, I'm curious. You're just back from Chelsea Flower Show where you won your gold medal and congratulations <laughs> that's brilliant but you know to my mind maybe this is very outdated view but chelsea flower show to me is a sort of you know byword for the more tailored manicured uh, controlled end of garden design and landscape design um are you actually seeing a step change in attitude right at the heart of the sort of landscape Grandees, or is there a bit of resistance? Is it kind of hands off our turf? We'll take care of the open space. I
2: don't. I don't think there is that resistance. I think Chelsea does have that reputation, but um, you know, the garden that we made for Chelsea this year was uh, a pocket park, it was the first time to bring a kind of idea of a shared park or shared green space to Chelsea. And the idea was that it had once been a derelict industrial space, and it had been taken over for people and wildlife rather than having things built on it I, I feel very frustrated that landscape is seen as a void for architecture and buildings and development that is one of my great you know um, sort of frustrations um, and we had an incredible response from the general public around that and um, I think we while there are you know we have a you know conflicting relationship with Chelsea do you think that there are elements to it that are you know are, are you know aren't necessarily inclusive, but the fact is it is it is broadcast across the world, it is on TV for a whole week. It reaches a huge swathe of people and people love it and it inspires them. It is it is a place where people go to for ideas and it is a place that has power to tell stories. And I think that is its value. It is not it is not actually the show and it's the show gardens themselves but the stories that they tell um and I think it was very clear from the gardens that were there this year not only ours but others you know where sustainability was really at the core not only of the choice of materials but the planting as well and and the kind of uh, the sort of um narratives around those and encouraging people to think about planting in different ways um and the very fact for example for the first time they had their sort of they had how you might plant areas if you've only got a small balcony, how you might plant areas if you can only have um, pots on there. Doing something is always better than nothing. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of hear the criticism of Chelsea, but I think we have to take a bigger picture in terms of how it influences people. Um, yeah, I think, you know, broadly, things like the Nature Recovery Networks are very exciting that, that are sort of tying up... Um, You know, creating these highways, whether we need something that is, you know, much more bold around a new environment act um, that sort of um, creates a really cohesive force to move forward with. I think it would that would be something that could be done on a national level. Um, But I don't think there's resistance in any way in places like the RHS. I think there's a real excitement that during. During the pandemic, um, people got really engaged with gardens and wildlife and walked into spaces they'd never walked in, whether they were small parks or large open landscapes. And they also traveled to places that they might not otherwise have been to, like the wilds of Wales or Scotland, because they couldn't go to anywhere else and got really engaged with those landscapes. So I, I do feel like there is movement on that.
0: Charlotte Harris, Christina Monteiro, thank you so much for joining me today in this final episode of our Habitat Matters series in partnership with ACO. You can download all our podcasts at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast. For more about ACO's Habitat Matters campaign, visit habitat-matters.com.